let's do it. Hey, hey everyone. We're gonna we're gonna do our best to start now. Uh, my name is Dave Riley. Uh, some of you, some of you might know me from my podcast, Fast Karate for the Gentleman. Uh, I got more response than the last time. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm also a critic. I write for sites like Anime News Network. Uh, I've been on Destructoid once or twice. I write for Otaku USA Magazine. And we're here to talk to you about criticism. Um, hi, my name is uh, Ajay Singh Chaudhary. I'm the director of the Philippine Institute for Social Research and also at the Institute for Comparative Literature and Society at Columbia University. And I guess I'm going to handle more the scholarly side of the discussion. <laughs> well, no, academics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's fine. He's just saying I'm dumb. I was not what I was saying. <laughs> so I'm going to be talking about journalistic criticism in games. And I want to ask you guys a question. Are video games art? This is what they say every time. I will on my dreams that I'm going to say that and people just laugh. Uh, so, because <laughs> it's, it's a foregone conclusion, isn't it? Uh, so I'm going to retire that joke now, but... <laughs> I said it last time, I said it this time, that's, that's enough. But so, when you think about your, your traditional video game review, I've got this, this schematic here that sort of breaks down the usual sections. You've got an introduction where we sort of play to the crowd and say, this is a game for gamers, made by gamers who are gamers. So we sort of pander a little. Uh, and then we say, hey, there's graphics in this video game. And we spend like, 100 words, 200 words, talking about frame rate. This, yeah, polygons. This, this game has resolution. This game has trees. Some of, the, some of them are oak trees, maybe. Uh, and then we, 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 then we spend the bulk, the bulk of it, the part what you shoot bullets at gets. So this is probably what you're most used to in, like, in your, your mainstream reviews, you get like a pretty long couple paragraphs about like the M16 has 30 bullets and fires pretty good and when you shoot a guy in the head he dies. But sometimes like there's like really strong guys and you gotta shoot them in the head like three times before they die. And that's where we spend a lot of our time. And then we have this little tiny paragraph at the bottom that's so small. I've made it small enough that you couldn't read. But my intention was not to make it so small that I couldn't read it. But in fact, uh, but in fact it is so small that I can't read uh, it. So I, then this little, little tiny paragraph somewhere towards the end, we say, also this game is an extremely complicated deconstruction of Call of Duty-style games that, while not perfect, really throws into sharp relief the mechanisms of military shooters and our reasons for playing them. And then we just skip to the story. <laughs> Which is a, a stunning 7.5555555. Which means that we're not buying it. We wouldn't buy this game. 7.55555, why so low? Uh, and then we, you know, we got to break it down because just having the, the 7.55555 is not enough. We got to say graphics, seven, seven-ish graphics. Shooty bits, 6.5. Deconstructing war shooters, eh, 7.2. So why do we do this? Uh, what we think of as, an, uh, as mainstream reviews, uh, a lot of people claim, they, a lot of people say, why can't you write an objective review? Uh, this is literally <laughs> impossible. Uh, it's, it's also a conversation that's been rehashed to the end of time, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but as human beings, we are inherently subjective, and as we are appreciating pieces of art, you know, we're not writing a consumer reports review. We're not writing about a lawnmower or a vacuum cleaner. So, you can talk about frame rate and you can talk about graphics and things like that, but they only get you so far. Uh, and this is that sort of jokey thing that I put in there is, you know, it's exaggerated, but the point is that we spend a lot of time talking about graphics and we spend a lot of time talking about the, the minute details of how you shoot everything in the video game. And then the example game that I, I didn't really properly introduce, I was, I'm, I'm talking here about Spec Ops The Line, which is a lot of what my talk is focused on, which Spec Ops The Line is a recently reduced, released military shooter that, uh, you know, at first blush, it really comes off as a Call of Duty game. Uh, it's actually a little more clever than that. Uh, you, you start out, you are soldiers going into an Arabic country, in this case you're going into the city of Dubai, and you are there to shoot Arabs, which is something you probably recognize uh, from <laughs> games like Call of Duty, from, from games like America's Army, so like, <laughs> literally supported by the U.S. government. Uh, 
and it, and it changes. You, you, you spend like an hour doing that thinking, well, you know, this is a, a Call of Duty video game and not a particularly good one. Uh, and, and it, but it turns out getting, it gets a little more complex. And where is the room for that in your mainstream review? Uh, so adhering to a formula is stifling. Uh, these reviews are non-holistic, like I say on the slide, so we have a, a graphics paragraph, we have a sound paragraph, and they come up as these really stilted chunks of writing without a lot of flow between them, uh, and with, without a lot of depth of ideas. Uh, personally, I don't feel served when there's an a, a in-depth discussion of the, the center channel, where the, <laughs> where the dialogue is coming from, if the game has a good 5.1 mix. In my experience, that's the thing you could spend one sentence talking about. Not like, oh, you know, you know there's a lot of shooty parts and it's really fun, oh, but whatever, it, uh, it totally recontextualizes every war shooter you've ever played, <laughs> full stop. And that's like the last thing they say about that. Uh, because what happens in Spec Ops The Line is that it stops being a game about shooting Arabs and it starts being a game about why do we shoot Arabs in video games. Or are these people Arabs? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also that. Uh, so there, specifically, you know, I, I've... Sorry, let me... So what does having a 5.0 for graphics really add to a critical piece about Spec Ops The Line? Score undermines the text. And it serves a market purpose, which is Metacritic, which doesn't really help us as game players. Uh, Metacritic has, is valued by people who make video games, or specifically corporations who publish video games, as a way of determining objective worth, uh, which doesn't have a lot of value, as I discussed. So why do we devote more than a cursory attention to features? Why do we have to spend 15 minutes on a podcast talking about how Spec Ops Align is a Gears of War clone and what a Gears of War clone entails. Like, we don't need to describe what a third-person shooter with cover mechanics is. I think even probably most of the people in this room know what that is, even if they don't play them. Uh, and so you need to understand your audience. Uh, you need to do your best to uh, show some critical literacy because we don't exist in a vacuum. So we don't reinvent the wheel, is what I have on the slide here. You, you'll see the PlayStation game featured next to it, Heart of Darkness. Uh, Spec Ops Align is, is greatly influenced by Heart of Darkness, which you all probably read in high school or college. Uh, it's, you know, it's got a lot of themes about reverting to this primeval state, about inhumanity, uh, about civilization. But who's, who talked about that in favor? Nobody did, because they wanted to talk about how many grenades the grenade launcher holds. Or <laughs> even after having talked about it, you know, you say, oh yeah, it's a pretty smart game, how like, it talks about it takes these soldiers who go into this place wanting to be heroes and examines what being a hero is really about. Uh, but, you know, the grenade launcher kind of sucked. So <laughs> why would anybody really bother to play this game? And, and <laughs> on the other hand, when we do finally grasp onto something that say, hey, this is pretty smart, like, for example, Bioshock, we think about, like, uh, oh, wow, objectivism, like, isn't that exciting that somebody's talking about that? Uh, well, objectivism has existed for a really long time. Bioshock did not invent it. It, it uh, invented a pretty good critique of it. Yeah. So <laughs> we need to realize that video games have precursors, and we need to, when we're talking about Bioshock, maybe we should mention a couple things about Ayn Rand, or maybe we should say, what, it, what does Ayn Rand's philosophy espouse, and what is Bioshock trying to say about that? instead of being like, eh, the parts where you hit with guys with wrenches are pretty good, 8.5. <laughs> so when you're talking about Spec Ops The Line, yeah, sorry, skip that. So yeah, we think of commercial performance as aesthetic quality, uh, which is the little slide I have there where Call of Duty Black Ops sold 23 million copies. So Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 is the best game. Well, it had, I, I mean, no, HD install base, so I guess I don't, I don't know what that means even. But so we can see that Call of Duty games have been getting progressively better. Because Call of Duty World at War only sold 9 million, and Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 sold twice as much as that, so it must be twice as good. And uh, I say that to you, and you're, you're like, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody think that? But that is sort of the logic that's espoused. I mean, I mean, if I could just jump in for once, uh, the language itself that slips, in, and this is in popular literature and in, in the academic literature as well, um, when, pe when you read sort of critical pieces of literature that use, you know, terms like IP, franchise, like things like this, and, and 
and discuss the quality of a game in terms of its success as a franchise? Will it warrant a sequel? That is not the kind of question that really tells us much about the game as a art object, as something, as what our experience was playing it, what we can say about it, what we want to talk about afterwards. That's just telling someone how many units to push. Yeah. So, instead of talking about things like that, I mean, I'm going to keep, I'm going to fall back to Spec Ops because it's recently it. released and it's probably one of the most interesting games released recently. Uh, when I talk about connections to Heart of Darkness, a lot of Heart of Darkness is about taking these, these African characters and they speak no, no words throughout the entire book. They have no language. And in, Heart of, or, sorry, in Spec Ops The Line, you go into Dubai, which is in the United Arab Emirates, and you immediately start speaking Farsi to the Arabic characters in there, which, which is literally taking the language of the United Arab Emirates away from them. They don't uh, speak Farsi. Though. They don't speak Farsi in Dubai, or not as a national language. Uh, <laughs> no. So instead of talking about machine guns and whatever, there's, there's a lot to plumb in those depths about self-reflective stuff, and some of this comes up. You might remember in, in Call of Duty Modern Warfare 1, there's a scene where you're in a, like a, an attack plane, something like that. I'm not familiar with the, the military stuff, but you are killing guys on the ground through a black and white camera. You've got a very deadpan dude talking to you, saying, like, get that guy over there, like, kill confirmed, whatever, stuff like that. And that's really dissettling, because for one moment in Modern Warfare, Warfare Call of Duty 4, uh, it pulls you out of that, like, rah-rah military, like, kill everybody <laughs> in the room, like, jump over the cover and shoot all the guys and save your American friends in the tank, and you're, like, a big hero in the victory gong plays. Uh, and you're, sit, you're sitting there by yourself quietly with this guy talking in your ear saying, like, target 30 meters to the right, and then you, like, drop a little bomb on him, and the little white guy, white man, yeah. poofs, and he's just gone. And that's really disconcerting. And uh, Spec Ops did something similar and sort of took it to the next level because the problem with Call of Duty is you do that, and then the next second you are back in an action scene. Uh, whereas in... Uh, Spec Ops, they, they do the same thing where you're, you're sitting there looking at a monitor, you're dropping white phosphorus on enemy soldiers, which white phosphorus, uh, I think it's the Vietnam War popularized it, if you want to yeah. call it that. Uh, it is one of the cruelest things you can do to an opposing force. Uh, it, it just burns them alive. Uh, it's horrifying. So <laughs> you do this, and you're, you're looking at these little white splotches on the screen, and you're dropping bombs on them. And then after you're done... Well, you got to walk through that. And then it, it, it takes you out of this moment, and you're sitting there, and there's, here's all these enemy soldiers which you regard as like potential headshots, generally. Things that are standing behind the cover on which you are on the other side, waiting for them to pop up. Or sometimes ridiculously running at you with knives. Uh, <laughs> and instead, you, you're looking at guys without legs. Like guys who are still alive, but burned to a crisp and beyond saving, uh, which is the the picture at the bottom right. And it completely contextualizes what you've been doing. So Call of Duty is making it creepy by putting you in this omniscient perspective and having you drop bombs on guys. Uh, Spec Ops is showing you the aftermath of that. And that's sort of the most talked about point with regards to the game. But people didn't really... Uh, the the verif verisimilitude of that, the gunship scene versus the spec ops scene, the, the fact that it contextualizes your actions uh, is something that video games don't really do. When you think about in Gears of War 2, I I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this, but... This whole talk is spoilers. Yeah, I realized this last Metal time Gear Solid, it. Portal, if you want to know, if, if you haven't played any of those. Uh, in Gears of War 2, your buddy has to mercy kill his wife. Uh, now, first off, I mean, let's let's... Forget Step about the fact then. that, that they, these guys are proportioned like giant cartoon teddy bears. Like they have these <laughs> giant arms. And his wife is like, or there's this weird sexual dimorphism going on in Gears of War where all the women are like this big and all the dudes are like this big. So, you know, he's kneeling down there like this cartoon man and she's this emaciated husk of a person who's been tortured and killed uh, or brought to the point of death. Uh, and he's like, I gotta do it. I can't. No, 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 no. So he pulls his gun out, his pistol, from behind her head, and it looks like, you know, he's like, well, what, what did I find in your ear? It's a giant revolver. That's three times the size of your head, and your dude with, like, his do-rag puts, puts, puts your hand on his shoulder and says, 
it's okay, man. And he, and he walks <laughs> away, and then he shoots his wife. And then literally, five minutes later, you're running around going, boom, headshot, bitch! Like, <laughs> like, the next part of the game is you get a sniper rifle, and you just sit up on top of this cliff, and you just curse at the enemies. But you're not, like, cursing, like, why'd you make me kill my wife? You are just, like, you're relating the exact same lines of stock dialogue. And, like, why is that okay? Like, it's really not. If that happened in a movie, you would be like, this is the worst movie ever. And also, and then I guess the, the other question is, why isn't the whole review about that? Yeah. I mean, isn't that, I mean, I, that's, isn't that more interesting than, than hearing about, like, how they changed the chainsaw gun to shoot more bullets? Uh, and that's something that, that Spec Ops really concentrates on, and the reason I bring it up is because it is astonishing. And maybe it'll blow your mind when I say it as much as it blew my mind when I realized it. But as you progress in Spec Ops, you know, you start out, you're doing the generic uh, military language, kill confirmed, like, one target down. And then as your guys sort of get ripped apart, you know, you have this white phosphorus scene where you murder all these people in this horrific way, and that's a really pivotal moment where your guy sort of snaps. Uh, and sorry, all of a sudden you're going like, get that fucker, like, yeah, kill that motherfucker, fucking reloading. And it sounds cheesy. I mean, it sounds like Years of War when I say it to you. But why don't video games, like, I imagine it has always been my contention that video voice acting is one of the cheapest facets of a game. Mm. And you've all played video games where the dude says, like, the same thing. Sometimes, like, three times in a row, they'll be like, oh, he's behind the bench. Like, get him, he's <laughs> behind the bench. So... You know what they call it in other mediums when dialogue progresses over the course of a game? It's called character development. <laughs> like in a movie, when the characters start acting different ways. <laughs> so where is that in video games? And you know, at first when Spec Ops said that, I was like, wow, that is amazing. How did somebody finally think to do that? And then after a second, I was just like, why, don't, why hasn't that, this always been here? Why don't we deserve this by default? And nobody, I don't know, how many people seem to care about that? So, I mean, furthermore, we're just terrified of spoilers, which is a problem. And I've spoiled a lot of things for you already, maybe, and I'm sorry if that, if that ruins your day. But the fact of the matter is that is we need to be able to talk about these things, otherwise uh, we're not going to make any progress. I, I, I used this last time, but at the bottom left I've got this Fatal Frame 2 picture. Fatal Frame 2 has a crazy ending that is maybe you would probably see it coming. But the fact that that game came out 10 years ago and I still have to feel like I sort of have to walk gingerly around the subject that I can't, she kills her sister. Um, <laughs> I never played Fatal Frame 2. It's not actually that good. It just has a really good ending. The, the, game, the game is not that good. Uh, are you from England? Because there's, no, uh, there's, a, there's a re-release in England. But... Uh, <laughs> And, and there's just a lack of attention to social criteria in general. So when you write a review about Lollipop Chainsaw, you say, hey man, this game is pretty weird. Because uh, what it says about women is a little weird. Because there is, uh, when you rescue a student, yeah, there are students to save, I'm sorry if I'm going to get a little profane at this point, but uh, when you save a student in this game, they spurt out lines like, hey thanks, I'm totally going to masturbate to you tonight. Uh, which... Maybe you don't think that's a problem, but like, the, the, the problem isn't that you don't think it's a problem. The problem is that there's this large-scale backlash on the I'm internet. I'm talking about to, it. it's, People just say, shut up, which is funny because a lot of people, I mean, everybody says video games are art. So you're saying that out of one side of your mouth, and then these people on the internet are saying out of the other side of the mouth, shut up, I don't want to think. Just, let's just say games are art and leave it at that, which is sort of not the point of that conversation. So when it, and they accuse you of like, hey, stop injecting these ideas into my, my video games where they were not. But in Lollipop Chainsaw, there's a boss who, whose attacks are literal instantiations of words. Words like horror and slut appear on the screen and then attack your character. I mean, that's not me bringing that up. That's the game yeah, saying not, like words are used to death. Yeah, that is... That is literally the text of the game. There's words on the screen. Like, it, it doesn't get any more literal than that. So, I, there's just a real problem with this, I call it the adversarial critic-fan relationship. Uh, everybody's a critic now. And we, we need to be, not, if not pals, we need to accept that there are different things to say about certain things, which I guess segues, segues into this issue of political correctness, on which you guys might have heard this really limited sort of baseline defense. Uh, 
I don't know. It's screed against. The IGN one? Yeah, there's an IGN article where this dude says, hey, man, can't we let market forces decide what video games are instead of just saying they're dumb? But that ignores a couple things. First off, the argument against political correctness is always that it stifles freedom of speech. Uh, That is not what freedom freedom of speech means. Freedom of speech is the government can't stop you from assembling in a public square. I mean, they can, actually. But they, I mean, ideal. Let's the keep gov- it in a Lockean ideal universe. The, the for government a cannot go on the internet and say, hey, you can't talk about this thing. That's the freedom of speech. Uh, a person on the internet who says, hey, you made a video game that was pretty dumb, is in fact exercising. Yeah, well, I mean, if you well, want to call it that. It's I mean, discourse. That's what yeah, we that's, want. <laughs> and, and so when people say, all right, so the example, I'm sick of bringing it up, but the example is the Tomb Raider game where there was like a really poorly contextualized scene of sexual assault. And the, the people who cry and bitch and moan about political correctness say, well, you, you're just saying that we can't have complicated topics like rape in video games, uh, which is actually not the case. All we're saying that is that if you want to talk about like really serious, really grown-up topics, you need to treat it as a grown-up idea and not, you know, the, the line I used was a, a greased water slide towards character development. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a constant problem in a lot of media that, like, how do we make the female character tough? We have to rape her. And it's that, like, it's that idea that sort of pervades through this Tomb Raider trailer. And we're not saying that you can't make your dumb Tomb Raider game or that it is de facto dumb. Although it probably is. Chances are. But uh, <laughs> it's statistically likely. What we're saying is that we have as much a right to express our opinion as you do yours. And, and my line there is, I don't like this, is not the end of the conversation. <laughs> that is, in fact, the beginning of the conversation. Because the next thing you're going to say is, I don't like this because. And then they're going to say, well, I did this because. And then that's how you have a conversation, not by saying, oh, political correctness is ruining this country. Uh, where in number three here, I have it, it says, criticism is a part of market forces. Uh, when when somebody true. criticizes something and then a company says, oh, maybe we shouldn't make that a video game, this is not some like end run around like taking out your wallet and paying for the video game, which is apparently like the only... When you talk about political correctness it's in this idea with this market forces connection to video games, that like the market will decide what video games are good. Uh, the idea that the only way to decide is by taking out your wallet is almost farcical. Like... Right. It, Especially when you hear it from the mouth of a person who is paid to be a critic. Like, this is literally your job, dude, on IGN. Like, do do you write every video game review as a 5.0, like, straight down the middle average, like, and then just say, some people like it? Because that is essentially what you're you're saying. Like, you know, because someone might like it, everybody should just shut up. Because, you know... I don't shout you down when you like your thing, but nobody's being shouted down. I mean, that's, that's, that's also part of the part about the internet is that everybody has a voice, and in, it is incredibly difficult, some would say impossible, to stifle people. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just really not what's going on here. And then I, I've got some summation points. But uh, probably we need space for things that aren't traditional reviews or top ten lists. Those have their purposes. Totally. Uh, especially, I, I, I actually... I'm a fan of top ten lists. I feel like they really, they really uh, adhere to like a base element of your psyche, and it's something that as nerds we find really satisfying. Probably, I mean, some of you guys are probably pretty young, and you probably grew up in the internet where you always knew that there were people like you. But some of us that <laughs> Back were in the day. some of us that were a little earlier, older, had like limited or no connections to other human beings. <laughs> I'm not saying that everybody, I mean, some of you guys in the audience also probably recognize this, but there, I still have a, a visceral thrill when somebody talks about something I like on the internet. And, and that's because when people share things that we like, we feel connected to them, and then it, it creates this sense of community. And this, a top ten list is like the easiest shortcut to that. And that's not bad. That's a really satisfying feeling, and it helps. But that's not the only thing that criticism can do, even though sometimes it seems like it is. Uh, and we should probably limit our rehashing of finished conversations. And this is not to cast aspersions about a J. Right, I'm about to rehash but games are conversations. And your response at the beginning of this <laughs> confirms that. So, and finally, video games don't exist in a vacuum. 
you know, we've got movies, TV, books, comics, painting, and music. And all of these inform the arts of video games, and that sort of cross-pollination of ideas is part of successful criticism. Uh, When film came out, people actually compared it quite negatively to stuff like theater. Right, and And, when novels came out, it was like, oh, this is like diversionary garbage um, mm -hmm. for for upper-class women to, like, waste their hours away with. Yeah, and (laughs) if people people can like Twilight, I mean, that's the thing. You can like anything you want, and it's fine. Uh, But the idea that, so, and we're kind of doing the same thing right now with video games. When you compare video games to another medium, it's to say this isn't as good as a movie. Uh, I mean, that's largely the comparison. Where you need to take stuff like Spec Ops The Line, which is related to Heart of Darkness, it is more explicitly related to Apocalypse Now, and try and think about what sort of connections those games and movies might have, uh, not necessarily plot-wise, because they're pretty divergent, but thematically, a lot of those elements are there, and that's the really important part of the conversation, not like how many bullets does the grenade launcher hold. Uh, so I'm just hoping for a little more of that. And uh, You know, it's... Should I jump in here? Yeah, feel free. I I lost my train of thought. Well, I mean, I think it's it's, it's a decent place for me to jump in if if that's okay, just because I think the other thing about the connection uh, that I want to talk about and sort of gets me in, please not be scared by my very academic title, um, that sort of gets me into where I want to talk about is that not only do games obviously reference movies, music, you know, books and whatnot, but... uh, Part of games criticism should also probably draw on a lot about, you know, I'd say, you know, 5,000 years or so. Well, 5,000 years might be pushing it. Several thousand years of aesthetic philosophy and literary criticism. Um, I'm not going to do all of that right now. Um, no, he is prepared. I am He's prepared. Got 13 pages. Yeah, but I'm not, you know, I've been cutting and cutting. We gave this talk once before, and I said, you know, I promised I wouldn't uh, write a long, boring academic paper. But um, that's just what I'm trained to do. So instead, I'm going to try to sort of do this a little extemporaneously. And uh, bear with me, because I am going to start with the question that Dave started with, which is the what is art question. Not because I think this actually is super controversial anymore at this point, but because I think it actually can get us into some pretty interesting uh, ways that we can start thinking about what games are and how we can talk about them in a more interesting way academically. Um, just as sort of Dave talked about the journalistic literature being a little bit restricted, I would say that the academic literature sadly uh, has its own issues and it, I would like love to be up here and be like, oh wait, there's this wonderful you know, scholarly literature that's you know, unbelievable, but it's just not the case. Well, in our experiences, it's more about like what music did they choose for Bioshock. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll Which is purely mechanical. Yeah. Um, so what is art? Okay, so good. Um, in regular everyday English, you know, art is a modern word. Art is a modern category like politics or religion, the state, any of these kind of things that has sort of obvious historical antecedents um, that we can view through the modern concept. Um, so like for the ancient Greeks, the, there was no question of what is art. The question about aesthetics was what is beauty? And um, what I've done over here is uh, put up a little image of uh, Marcel Duchamp's uh, famous fountain, which is just a urinal. It's just a prefab urinal that he signed, not even with his own name, um, in 1917, dragged it into, a, uh, into an art gallery, uh, took a picture of it, and was like, okay, art. Um, and the point wasn't just simply to sort of be a dick. Um, the point was, no, I mean, there was a little bit of that, yeah. yeah dickishness was, was about, but uh, the point was that he was like, look, you know, clearly we have moved the question in the modern era away from the old Greek question of what is beautiful, right? What is the beautiful? Which, you know, had gotten really blown up in the romantic era, and, you know, the sort of very, very dramatic people, you know, thinking like, ah, oh, the roaring ocean, what does it mean? It's so beautiful. Um, or it challenges me into the question, uh, what is art itself? What is art? Not what is beautiful. What is art? And the answer that Duchamp was basically saying was like, look, it's whatever we're going to think about as being art discursively, between you and me, between the artists, between the object and the people. Um, and in some ways, this is closer to the, to the original conception of what aesthetics is, um, which is aestheticos. It's things that have to do with our uh, senses, uh, things that have to do with how we interact with the world. 
And uh, incidentally, Duchamp quit the art world uh, about 10 years after this and became, or tried to become a champion chess player. Ended up spending most of the rest of his life writing essays about chess endgame. And was like, chess itself, uh, the rules of chess, um, the way it is played is an art form, um, not the formal characteristics of it. Um, so I thought that was a nice place to start, which brings us to games. Um, oh, but before... <laughs> Just putting one last nail in the coffin of the what are art, what are the games are art then. Um, everyone's probably familiar with the sort of the, what I call the Ebert argument here, um, which is that uh, games cannot be art. So the, the argument is games cannot be art for two reasons. One, they do not elicit emotional responses, and um, then I'm not endorsing this position. Uh, the you know the exact quote is no one cries at level seven. Um, so that's sort of, you know, column A. And column B is what I'm calling here auteur theory, which is merely just a nice way of saying, you know, that the, the art object reflects, you know, whether it be a film, a novel, uh, or a piece of studio, it reflects the unique, you know, yeah. soul visionary. Soul creative vision yeah. of one person. Yeah, the soul, so it's like my soul expressing itself into poetry or whatnot. Um, and, and I think these both can be refuted pretty easily, but also in, in a pretty important way that can get us into talking about games. Well, one is that, A, we just know it through sort of anecdotal data, but even through sort of empirical data, uh, that this is not the case. I mean, the, all, you're all, all of your reactions to this sort of prove the point. Um, but you can also do it by what I'm calling imminent critique, uh, which is that in film itself, uh, we have countless examples of films that do not make you cry or elicit any kind of sort of maudlin sentimental um, reaction. And a lot of these are considered some of the most artistic uh, films. Um, you can think of a film like, I have, I have here, for example, uh, Zviga Bertov's Man with a Movie Camera, which is a pioneering work in experimental cinema that is charming and playful and original and deeply political, for example, but it doesn't make you cry. Uh, it doesn't elicit uh, this kind of sentimentality. And there, you can also think about a whole list of, of emotional states that are more easily accessed in gameplay, things like exhilaration, for example, things like um, excitement, that sometimes films maybe are not as uh, adept at grasping. Um, the second, the auteur theory question, I think we can deal with without even going into sort of post-structural theory with like Roland Barthes and the death of the author, which just to say simply we live in an age where countless art forms, especially television, comic books, you know, movies, um, they're all explicitly socially written. They're written by groups. They're produced by large numbers of people. Um, novels and studio art actually stand out as the sort of exception. If you think about the wide range of, of studio and performing arts, so like music, dance, theater, film, TV, comics, those are all socially written art forms um, in which an auteur theory does not make any sense. So, no more Ebert, no more what is art. We're done. We're done. We beat him. Done. We beat Ebert. Okay. So what is going on in academic games criticism? Um, one, there really isn't anything that I would call you know, academic games criticism qua criticism. There's a lot of stuff about game design, um, this would, uh, or theory of design, um, I'm putting here neuropsychology and engineering. Now what do I mean by these things? Um, there's a lot of discussions of how to make games, um, literally from an engineering perspective, from a sort of game designer, uh, sometimes uh, emotional perspective, um, or the sort of other side of the literature, and you might be much, much more familiar with this, is the sort of social psychological or neuropsychological stuff about which like what the, games do to us. Yeah, which is the Mass Effect lesbian right. rape simulator you saw on Fox <laughs> News five years ago. Right, I mean, there are studies that are better than the one that got misread on Fox News, but it's, in essence, this is not about creating a, crit a critical literature about video games. This is about studying social scientific data about video games. Um, that, that stuff's important. We're going to need that stuff, but that's not the only stuff we're going to need. Um, so it is all very design-oriented. I just talked about the social psychological critique. The one last thing to talk about in terms of sort of very popular ideas in contemporary uh, game literature is the idea of gamification. Um, raise your hand if you've heard of this term. I bet a lot of people have. It's yeah. very popular. Okay. Um, so gamification is a sort of notion that if I can turn anything into a game, whether it be work 
for sort of chores or I mean like this is yeah. well this is uh, Jane McGonagall's uh, idea famous. of World of Warcraft will save the world right that if we can incentivize people in their lives as we do in World of Warcraft to give them like a couple points for waking up on time in the morning and a couple points for brushing their teeth uh, then everything will be better in the world this will sort of scale up until people get 1500 points for like clearing a nuclear waste site. Yeah, the thing that I find even sort of more horrifying about this, other than the fact that it is still sort of a design-oriented and also neuropsychological literature, is that it's very reminiscent of, of uh, Fordism, or uh, sort of 20th century, you know, Henry Ford, which is like de developing techniques that can extract as much labor out of you as possible. And so it's, he's like, well, if I have a dude with one arm and no legs, how can I make a little machine in the factory that makes sure he works for at least 10 hours a day? And this is actually what inspired Stalin to be like, yes, that's how you make a factory run. That's how you make it's a like country run. Um, it's a very bad idea. Um, and especially when you're talking about games, right? Because games are based around the concept of play, which seems to run quite against the notion of constantly working. Well, the, the idea of, of gamification that worries me primarily, is that it encourages the state of perpetual adolescence, oh, right. yes. where no thing has value inherently. Uh, it's only valuable because of this metatextual meta aspect on top of it. Like, you're not going to brush your teeth because it staves off cavities uh, and bad breath. You're going to do it because you get a couple points, which is sometimes a worrying thing that happens with video games. You can see it completely explicitly with Xbox and achievement points. Right, we talked like, about this last time. And sometimes achievement points are like a really thrilling way to extract fun out of a game, that a game you enjoy so completely that you would do, you just want to find different ways to enjoy it. This is how, like, I'm going to beat Super Mario Brothers, but, like, never pick up a fire flower. Like, that sort of idea made literal and rewarded, which is not explicitly bad, but the issue is that uh, it encourages this chasing of the meta element uh, instead of the primary one which is how you get to the point of, of like renting the Avatar game because you can get all the achievements in five minutes, which is like maybe you find that fun and that's your game, which means that you sort of, you're operating on a different level than the people who are just playing the game. But a lot of people, when you hear them talking about that, say, man, I hated playing this game for the last like 10 hours, but I had to get all those achievement points. But, like, you didn't have to. <laughs> they don't actually do anything. It's, it's all just you pretend. You turn games into work. Yeah, and then it's like, I mean, would you, you'd like, oh, I hate that movie. I hate it. But somebody's going to give me 200 points if I watch it. <laughs> okay, so what would I like to see instead? Um, and like I said, I don't want to say that there's nothing interesting or nothing useful in the existing academic literature. There's a lot of stuff, but what isn't there is what I would call a critical theory or, or a literary theory or really any sort of humanistic uh, research. Um, so I have a couple quotes up here. Uh, the first one I bet you've seen a lot of times. Uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, and this is from Arthur C. Clarke. And the second is probably one you have not seen a million times. Uh, your work has situated itself at the crossroads of positivism and magic. And this is a, in a letter from Theodore Adorno's Walter Benjamin. Um, now, why do I include these two quotes? Um, well, we're not really talking about positivism as a logical positivism. If you want to talk about that me after the talk, you certainly can. Um, and we're not really talking about magic, like, ooh, magic. Um, <laughs> Uh, we were talking about enchantment, um, and what Adorno was saying to Benjamin was like, he's like, I think that you and your, uh, in talking about technology and art, have sort of come across this theory that seems to be taking the side of a way in which the interplay of objects can create a sort of enchantment in the world. Um, so why am I beginning with you know a 20th century you know German theory and German words and concepts. Um, Benjamin is widely known as one of the most influential literary and art critics and uh, aesthetic philosophers and, well, moral philosophers of, of 20th century. Um, but one of the things that really set him apart from his contemporaries was, and a lot of his counterparts today, uh, was that he was unabashedly fascinated with technology. Um, so fascinated is, is sort of a key word here. Um, but I'll come back to that in a second. Um, another uh, 
and not unrelated interests alongside technology was his, was his interest in games and play. He wrote a lot of essays about toys, about games, about sort of these sort of strange objects that we find in the world. And he thought both were sort of crucial to understanding the habits that form the basis of human practice. Um, Spielen in German, in fact, means both games and play. Um, and this made it centrally important for a wide variety of social and pedagogical re reasons. Now, this is not to say that we should th think of this as like a one-to-one -one relation, right? So it's not the rape simulator, uh, Fox News thing, right? Yeah. We don't do the things in games that we do in real life. That should be plainly obvious. Um, but we do learn things. We learn a wide variety of things. And, uh, we learn rule sets. We learn um, ideas and images. Um, we learn relationships between objects. We learn all manner of activities that ground a kind of meaning in action and in objects. And the very repetition of doing things, which is what especially you do in video games, um, you know, you push some buttons over and over and over again, um, has a certain uh, pleasurable quality to it. Um, we derive pleasure in the repetition. Um, you can even think about sort of the idea of sort of like do it again, do it again. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, there's a sort of sense of wonder involved in that. Now, I said before that Benjamin was fascinated, but he, he used the word sort of for its amb ambiguity. Um, just in the sense that I'm not going to go too deeply into it. I changed this. Last time I did like a history of dialectics. Now I'm just going to give a brief note on dialectics. I'm just going to say that Benjamin was aware that these things could create sort of, could have a, a, we should critique them in all of their sort of full you know, social relations. We should understand the economic forces. This is something we don't do in games criticism very often. We should understand the economic forces that are making them and why they're making them. We should understand how they fit in society, what they are doing in society. But at the same time, you also wanted to hold on to a positive image. Like, what is the thing that I can, what's the dream image? What's the possible, playful, you know, possibility in this object? So, Benjamin starts to create an object, uh, a critique in which objects, productive connections, and implications of the world, you know, were critiqued, but with, without reducing away the possibilities. Um, so uh, I've been drawing mostly from this uh, one of the most famous essays of Benjamin, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Um, and there are several key theses. I think perhaps the most important one for our discussion of video games is the one that follows. Uh, Benjamin argues that in previous stages of art production, uh, in, uh, in particular, there was a certain cultic quality, which he calls aura. Uh, this, again, is not like magic aura or like Shirley MacLaine aura. Um, it's sort of more of a, a sort of like, uh, awe-inspiring awe distance that surrounded art objects. And the best way you can think about this is that there were certain kinds of medieval art that no one even ever saw. Right, so I have here two images of uh, inside, intern, insides of cathedrals. People would literally build statues up in like the corners of a, of a vault in a, in a cathedral that after it was created, no human could ever see. Um, this was clearly a theory of art that is very foreign to, to modern conception. And one of the things Benjamin noted in this essay is that, as he, uh, I have a quote here, he says, when, we sort of lose access to that notion of art. We're like, why on earth would you build a statue where no one can see it? That doesn't make any sense, it's crazy. Um, and at the same time, we also don't encounter art the same way, right? We don't see the Mona Lisa just like for the first time hanging on the wall in the Louvre. We've seen it 10,000 times in a book, already reproduced by the time we ever see that. So this sort of art aura, this sort of magical aura around uh, art objects disappears. And what he says is replaced by it um, is something he calls Spielraum, which is room for play. Um, and I want to explore, I mean, a lot of people have talked about, in the original essay, Benjamin was talking a lot about film, the way in which technology and film allows us to see the world. So yes, it does not have the aura of an art object such as you know, a statue in the, you know, in the uh, the vault of the cathedral, but it has something else. It has this playful quality, it has this ability to show us things and to recreate acting and recreate actors and display these things magnified for us in ways that are essentially magical, right? So when a, when a film actor performs before a camera eye, you know, you get to see their most minute little actions, their most, and they start reacting to that, but they're performing for a machine. 
surrounded by lights, you know, and the machine might only be, be recording their hand, and you're going to see this displayed through montage. There's a hand, and then an eye, and then an ocean, and then something else, and this is a completely new way of seeing the world that's incredibly, it, what he's calling playful. I think, and I'm drawing on a, a couple of thinkers here who've, who've said this, that this can be even more productively moved into the realm of gameplay, this idea of room for play as a source of art um, theory and a source of art production. So I have sort of four examples. Do I have, do you have time for four We got examples? 15 minutes. All right, cool. I'll try to go through four examples quickly um, uh, of the kind of thing I'm thinking of. The first is with the game Fez. Um, I assume most people, some people probably, probably like Fez. Maybe yes, maybe no. Okay, yeah, cool. Um, I'm all the, I was going to say up front, spoiling all the games. They're all ruined. <laughs> Deal with it. Um, so this is one part of, and I, I'm not going to read this whole quote from Weber, but suffice it to say that Weber, as I've been discussing earlier, was one uh, sociological theorist who was like, you know, as we progress into the modern era, this kind of dis disenchantment becomes pervasive. And for Weber, this was a very bad thing, right? So we no longer find meaning in the world. It's very nihilistic. It's very scary. He's writing in the 20th century in Germany. You can think why things weren't looking so hot. Um, any case, uh, I call Fez the re-enchantment thesis because there's one particular part of Fez, and actually many parts. This part's particularly uh, exemplary, um, where you you're sort of sitting there and you're presented with a room. Uh, I have the image of the room here. And it has this QR code. And you're sitting there and you've been playing Fez for a while and it's a pretty cool game. You're jumping around, making the world spin around and whatnot. And all of a sudden you see you have no idea what to do and you're sitting in this room and, and you're like, does the game really want me to get up and scan this with my phone? And it does. Um, and all of a sudden, magically, it pops out into your phone the answer to the puzzle, which is a series of clicks on the triggers. But what has happened in that moment, I remember this happened, I was playing it with someone else, and we were sort of sitting in the room, and I've talked to other people about this experience as well, is that for that moment, you all of a sudden had no idea what this game was going to do. The sort of Arthur C. Clarke thing about magic sort of really comes alive here, where the game had sort of turned the whole room, objects that I thought were not involved, with the game were suddenly part of the game and I was like this game I don't even know like where it's going to end and I call this a sort of sense of re-enchantment because there's like a complete open unpredictability unknowability impossibility that the game was bringing about upon the world well there's a in, in my experience with yeah. Fez when we did this uh, I didn't even know what a QR code was or I knew what they were but I didn't know how to interact with them so I just, I'd seen them on the subway on ads uh, so I took a picture with my phone and it didn't work. It just had a picture of a PR, QR code. So I said, what the hell are we supposed to do? And we, uh, Grouts and I, my girlfriend, uh, we, we stream games to the internet. So you've got the chat channel sort of like breadcrumbing you along, telling you like, oh, you need, you need an app. So you know, you're downloading the app and you're spending that time being like really excited, like watching the app fill up iPhone, <laughs> like getting it out, taking a picture, it flips it. You have no idea what's on the other side of this picture because you've never, or I've never taken a QR code picture before, so I have no idea what's going to show up. And then it just flips into the phone's like menu mode, me yeah. the memo, and shows me this memo, and I was like, holy crap. Holy shit. Uh, I mean, I, I had a similar experience with the new Steel Battalion, which is mm -hmm. not a very good game. Uh, I thought you said that was a terrible it's game. It's awful. Uh, it, is, it is frankly terrible. Uh, Primarily because it does not work 80% of the time. It's a game that uses Kinect to control a robot. So you are sitting in a chair. You have to sit perfectly upright. You have to sit eight, six to eight feet away from the screen. You have to have really bright lights on we you. We live in New York. We're yes. six to eight feet from the screen. It's just not so uh, There is barely six to eight feet in my apartment. Uh, so I'm sitting there, and you're like putting your hand up here to like pull the imaginary chain that ventilates the smoke out of your robot. Uh, and when it does not work, it is the most frustrating thing you will ever experience. When it does work, it, it essentially like magics the air around yeah. you. That, like the, the air itself becomes a tool in your game. And then it gets to this point where, you know how you feel when you're on like a really good jag in a video game where you, you feel like you're on a streak. Uh, when you have those moments in Steel Battalion, you are like lifting your hand, you're like swiping to the side to to slap your, your loader guy so he stops freaking out and puts the bullet in, and then you, you swipe back the other direction, and then you raise your hand up to get the periscope down, and then you put your hand on the controller, and like a dude pops out of nowhere like another robot, and you like, bam, like 
pull the trigger on the controller, and you, you hit him in the leg, and his leg falls off, and he crashes to the ground, all in the span of, like, five seconds. And then you, like, <laughs> kick the periscope back up, uh, and you, like, put your hand out to hit the button to change your ammo. And it becomes, like, sublime. Like, yeah, you... I mean, Child of Eden does that with Kinect really yeah, well Yeah, like, well. you can... You could not conceive of this uh, sequence of actions being possible, like, with a controller. It would not be as exciting to, like, push Y to turn your headlights on and right. stuff like that. And the problem with Seal Battalion, of course, is that that very rarely happens. But when it does... Yeah. So, I mean, to borrow... To, actually, uh, perfect, because like, I, what I wanted to like, end this thought on was to borrow another sort of critical theory term, which is the idea of this, this sort of constellation... Um, which again was is an idea from Benjamin, which is just a creative rearrangement of the world um, that we do, right? It's like looking at a constellation in the sky, right? You don't, it's just stars, but we can make it look like you know Dipper and you know Orion's Belt and whatnot. And it, but when you think of it as a constellation, it's a rearrangement that's pregnant with possibility and meaning. But really, all you've physically done, and we should always be aware of this, is scan a screen yeah. with a barcode. Um, okay, so portal. Um, I'm going to call this the structural critique thesis. Uh, Portal is a game about games. A lot of really good games are games about games. Um, but it plays out by requiring you to learn a set of rules and then unlearn them. Um, patterns and then you, sorry, learn and then unlearn a set of rules and patterns through learning and then developing others. So this is all about sort of pedagogy. This is best exemplified by the scene near the end of the game, again, spoilers, um, where you, the player, are being instructed by the increasingly strange and psychotic GLaDOS to continue down a conveyor belt into fire. Um, you know that this is a bad idea. A very, very bad idea. Um, but perhaps you've been so conditioned to, to the game, as was I, that you just sort of went, all, went along with it. And maybe you went along with it a few times. I, I, I can't, um, so maybe I jumped in the fire wrong. Yeah. But eventually... Eventually, what Portal actually does through this sort of creative interaction between uh, player and game, and by the way, this is not, there's interaction in almost all art forms, this is sort of its own different kind of interaction, um, is that you learn to do what you've conditioned not to do. Um, and this is an extraordinary thing for a game to teach you. Um, you can sort of make a, met a meta critique that the game is still a game, so you're still kind of playing by someone else's rules, but you suddenly opened up a whole new world of, of possibility, and you can then reflect back upon this as a sort of pedagogical idea, something you've learned, and think, huh, there's probably lots of things that condition me to do things that I maybe should think a not about doing, like running into fires, but maybe not so obvious. Um, and Portal does a really good job of suggesting that is a good way of thinking about the world, and that's a pretty... Uh, profound thing to say. I'm going to leave out the addendum. The, uh, I just wanted to say games like Shadow of the Colossus also have yes. these like unreliable uh, mentor characters. Right, that the give voice in the sky yeah. that's telling me to kill I mean, it's a little more, animals. It's a little more overt in Shadow of the Colossus where your, your mentor is like a giant flying black cloud. So that's maybe not a good guy. But the interesting thing about Portal is that it gives you an explicit way to subvert the system. Yeah. Like the way to, to win at Shadow of the Colossus is to stop playing the game. Right. Which is a different idea entirely, but Portal gives you a way to fight back. Even though it's still in the confines of the games, it is outside of the confines of games as we often understand them. Yeah, I mean, I... I think the, when we last talked about it, the way, you, the way you put it was that, yeah, you win Shadow of the Colossus by just shutting off the machine. Um, because the game makes you feel terrible. I mean, which is, a, again, an extraordinary thing that we can explore and maybe encourage other people to think about making games that don't necessarily yeah. all involve power fantasies. Um, okay. I'm going to try to do this one as quickly as possible. I'm definitely not going to read this quote from Jürgen Habermas. If anyone does want this paper or like any of this kind of stuff, I will happily send it to you and you just talk to me afterwards. Um, but I just want to talk a little bit about the, um, the co-op and journey, which if you know anything about sort of you know, contemporary, you know, whether it be Anglo-American or Continental or any sort of language philosophy, the idea that I and someone who does not speak the same language as me could talk to each other um, and actually know vaguely what we are talking about is such an extraordinary thing as to be actual magic. Um, there's not even there's a, there's a large question as to whether like we understand each other and we're all speaking English. I mean, that's not necessarily determinate. Um, what happens in 
the, the co-op in Journey is that it is such a limited, so restricted, uh, such a restricted space for communication that you actually manage to talk to people or at least perform what I'm calling communicative action. It's not quite language, right? It doesn't have a grammar. You can sort of chirp loudly or chirp softly, sing a little bit, yeah, you know. Chirp it a couple times in a row. Yeah. But you actually find in, uh, that, you know, eventually people, by sort of dancing around and chirping at you, you find that you're able to, like, get your way through these little levels and discover things. And it's really, again, quite sort of magical. Um, and then at the end of the game, you see that the person who did that was from Kyrgyzstan. And you're like, I definitely don't know anything about Kyrgyzstan. Yeah. And what the hell just happened? And this is a really extraordinary moment. Not because you actually, you, you have not had a meaningful conversation with Kyrgyzstan man X or woman X. Um, you have had, though, the sort of dream image. You've had the, seen the possibility of that kind of communication, and it's really extraordinary. I, I've had the same experience in, in Dark Souls, yeah. where when playing the co-op in that, you know, you'll make friends in this world with no communication between you. There's no way to interact. They're almost always random. You really have to game the system to play with a friend. Uh, so we're playing, the two of us, Gratz and I, and we're, we're in this area, and this guy keeps harassing us. Because not only can you play with people, but other people can play against you. So this guy keeps dropping in and killing us, because we suck. And, uh, <laughs> and the, the, the additional horror of playing Dark Souls with another person is that checkpoints are no longer available to you. Uh, they are only available in the single player. I'm not playing So Dark the Souls. only way to, to proceed is to hit like about an hour-long period and unlock a shortcut. So this guy keeps harassing us, and it's at one of the hardest parts of the game. If you've played it, there's these two archers who shoot you off this little ledge, and you, you just die over and over again. So we've cleared that point, and this same dude with the skull mask like shows up and kills us. So we're in a part where we can summon backup. So I say, I say to Graz, hit that thing on the ground, and we're going to pick this dude up. And we pick up Damien Septuccini, yeah. which... Uh, <laughs> And this dude comes out, and he's got the full armor, he's got this giant sword that we don't even know what it is. Uh, and that guy with the skull mask comes into the room and takes one look and turns around. <laughs> and then, like, five seconds later, it says, this jerk-off has left your game. And, and then we hung out and became, like, best friends with Damien Septicini awesome. and, like, explored the rest of the world together and never said a word and, like, just, like, two ships passing in the night and we, we never heard from him. And it's Two that, ships passing in the night, but like exchanging food objects. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, like chucking a thing yeah. of bread. I don't know. This, this popped into my head. It's maybe not entirely accurate, no, but, but um, when you play Silent Hill 2, uh, your actions in the game determine what kind of person you are. And it's not like in Mass Effect where like someone's like, "Man, I really wish someone would be nice to me," and you're like, "Well, I'm going to be nice to you." And it's like, "Well, you're probably a pretty nice person then." Uh, this is sort of things like, "Is your character suicidal?" Or right. like, "Does he?" Does he obsess over this bloody knife that he has in his inventory? Uh, does he read the suicidal letters scattered around the town? Like, how does your character feel about his wife? You have a letter from your wife in your inventory. If you repeatedly read that, the game interprets that as you caring about your wife a lot. And that creates your character without explicitly doing something, which is not exactly the same thing as communicating no, with another person, but you're sort of communicating with the game in that fashion without saying, like, I want to be a really nice person. Because really, when you're playing it, you have no idea that this is happening. I mean, which is also, again, a worthy object of criticism. Yeah. Um, my final example, and I'll try to wrap up quickly, um, is Metal Gear Solid 4, and that may have been somewhat of a surprising choice, um, but I didn't want people to think that I was just trying to sort of talk about art games versus sort of um, mainstream games or some, some very reductive high art, low art kind of notion. Um, and I also wanted to deal with one of the fundamental flaws in the scholarly approach, the design-oriented approach to games criticism. Um, and that is understanding uh, whether, sort of rehashing this question of whether the designer is the author or the player is the author, or it's a combination of the two. It's sort of a very classic literary critic kind of argument. Um, and I'd like to propose a different understanding. It's hard to argue that for Metal Gear Solid 4 or uh, any of the games that I've talked about actually so far, that they're pure open world or sandbox creation or god games. And even those kind of games, they do have still rule sets that you are working with them. Um, but this only matters, and people harp on about this, like, oh, where is the player choice? Where is the true interactivity, right? When are we going to iterate our own things? And this is just sort of like always pointed out as the sort of the uh, holy grail of game design. Um, but this only matters if we're thinking about authors, if we're thinking about authorial points of view. 
Um, I think the error has been in the constant comparison of the re of like the reader of books or the viewer of movies to the player of games. I don't think these map onto each other perfectly. Um, it's far closer to the way I think an actor or a dancer uh, acts in a play or dances in a in a in a ballet. Um, the sort of same kind of technological magic that Benjamin described that sort of transforms the actor and acting in films and allows audiences to see through eyes that are not their own, allows game players to be both actors and audience at the same time. And the way, the moment I think about this, sort of that perfectly exemplifies this in Metal Gear Solid 4, is the very, very second to last thing that happens in the game, so really spoilers, um, in which Snake slash you, and it's an uneasy relationship, because I do think you, I do think that Snake is a separate entity. It's not quite this sort of avatar notion of like, oh, my consciousness is entirely Snake. I think you still realize your own account. Um, <laughs> But you and Snake, or you are pushing Snake to help him crawl across this bridge in an irradiated room. Now, if I were using the language of game design, the literature of game design, uh, uh, this is the worst sequence. This is actually the worst sequence you can possibly have in a game. The player is doing absolutely nothing but pressing X to advance Snake upon a 100% predetermined on-rails path from point A to point B. There is literally nothing else happening. Um, from the po design point of view, it is a movie. This is just straight up a movie, but the only difference between it and a normal movie is that I'm turning the crank and I'm making the film. You're the projectionist yeah, and I'm the audience the, yeah. at the same time. But I don't think this is the way we should think about games. Uh, this is certainly not the only way we should think about games. Um, games as an interplay of art and technology, uh, and in fact, people in nature, um, do not feel the way they look to some kind of like, indifferent third-person design perspective. This is much more about sort of what we might call in sort of Philosophical language is a sort of phenomenology of gameplay. Um, the player, at least me, when I was doing this, and I think uh, this is true for a lot of people, when you get to that scene, you're like, oh my god! <laughs> Snake must get across this bridge. If he does not get across this bridge, it will be like the end of all things. And like, that, it literally felt that emotionally charged. Um, and it, as if nothing else in the world mattered. Technology had not magically made me Snake. But it had augmented my perception to see and feel something that was previously impossible. And that was something that the game had done. It had nothing to do with choice. It had nothing to do with the sort of crass notion of interactivity that we talk about a lot. Um, and it certainly wasn't reality. But it was a kind of magical realism in what is otherwise a kind of absurdist text. Um, I mean, it's also kind of exciting because, like, you're hammering that button and your arm starts to hurt. And... You've got that sort of like limited connection where you're like, man, this must be how he's feeling getting hit by microwave rays. <laughs> well, probably. I mean, the interesting part about that is you're you're sitting there like, can I actually lose this? <laughs> or you're you're not thinking about it. Apparently, at the time. you can. We thought you couldn't lose yeah, it. Yeah. But the last time we gave a panel, someone was like, no, you can lose that sequence. So I was like, you you have to try hard, which is the thing. But it does not matter in the moment. Like all you want to do is win, and you don't care that you probably can't lose that, or it would be extremely difficult too. So I think we're running out of time, so I'm not actually going to go over too much the end of this very, very shocking set of images here. Um, suffice it to say that I think me and David both touched on the, the critical need. I've talked to him a lot about the sort of creative possibilities in games, but there's also a critical need to be aware of some of the sort of really deep-seated uh, structural and content level um, sort of issues in games and not to sort of be quiet about them. We need to talk about economics, we need to talk about ideology, we need to talk about the ways in which games structure how we react to games themselves and other things. Um, and we want to encourage, I think through criticism, sort of creative possibility, more the left-hand column, and less uh, the right-hand column of sort of fascist indoctrination. Um, and if you want to talk more about that, I think we'll have time after panel. Yeah, but that's it. That's so it if, you, if you yeah. guys want to look us up. We got websites, we got Twitter, we're on the internet. Why am I clapping? Yeah, you clapping. I apologize. I'm so used to being on the other side. <laughs> but thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank, thanks really for sitting still the whole time. We really appreciate it. Oh, uh, my name is AJ Chaudhary. Oh, yeah. Uh, my name is AJ Chaudhary, AJ-A-Y. Oh, uh, just take <laughs> Yeah, hard. Uh, Dave Riley. Great. Um, email. Yeah, email me and I will. Can you give me guys my email address so I can get these PowerPoints? Sure, sure. Uh, here. Go ahead and tell me. I'll just write down. Uh, yes, the total. Hip. Honestly, um, I'm 
Uh -huh. Uh -huh. All right. It's funny. Last no problem. Night, um, I was discussing this paper with someone else cool. that can give it, and I talked about the total artwork yeah, yeah. and all this stuff. Okay. And but I said that the game could be a version of the notion of the total artwork. Okay. No problem. That sounds awesome. No, no, please do. Email me. It's really nice to meet you. I'm going to try and find a way to do so. Uh, I do not have an official venue. Uh, do you follow me on Twitter? Oh, okay. absolutely. I'm, I will tweet um, probably sometime tomorrow, some place that people can go. Uh, I don't know, because I, I don't have a cable or anything. So I don't want to like, sell them in the convention and get in trouble. Yeah, yeah. But I do have them in my hotel room, so I'll figure out some nearby convention spot, like right outside where I'm in the law. Yes. Yeah. You did. Thanks, thanks for your interest, you two. Okay. I hope I have enough cards. One thing, though. You know, I started playing Max Payne. I hope not. I think actually as it becomes cheaper to make things, I think constantly talking about oh Max Payne. As like for example the the capacity to do really advanced games within browsers becomes more more a possibility that the sort of small level development will have a little bit more of a chance. Oh, really? I, never, I, I, I played it pretty recently too. I never noticed that. Like, I'm not crazy about it. You know, it's pretty good. Yeah. The idea that you know, I as a, as a person, not as a character, um, felt bad. Or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've seen those sort of moments in games. Um, the thing that excited me about Max Payne 3 is that like weird sort of garbage video thing they did, which was pretty cool. And uh, I'm always interested in that idea of like using video to telegraph the person. Well, the, the character's mental state. Yeah. Uh, sorry. And uh, that yeah, that's not something that's really taken advantage of a lot. Uh, I just I just played Fear Three, and there's sort of a lot of weirdness like that. And yeah, and I mean that was only okay as well. But uh, just those sort of neat ideas. I hopefully will not. Spec Ops is actually pretty good about that. No, I mean, it's actually, a lot of you're gonna get the copy like you're gonna get, it's gonna say, like, do not distribute, like but because yeah. it's, it's still a work in progress, so it's not up in the air. Uh, uh, 